Well, we continue our look at the book of Acts, and hopefully you all have been reading Acts. Um, I want to encourage you, if you're at home, I encourage you to get your Bibles out and open them up to Acts chapter 6. If you're here, um, I encourage you in weeks as you come, bring your Bibles uh, with you as we walk through Acts. Today we're going to look at chapters 6 and 7, um, and in fact, over the next four weeks, we're going to look at um, uh, four different um, individuals and stories about them. This week, we're going to look at Stephen. Next week, we're going to look at Philip. The week after that, we'll look at uh, Saul, who became Paul. And then we'll look at the story of Peter and Cornelius. And in all of these stories, um, we want to pay attention to how God was at work in the early church, uh, forming them and shaping them, looking how um, in, in working with the people of the early church that God still speaks to us today also. And if you've been with us, you, you know that uh, last week we uh, looked at that uh, story in Luke uh, or in Acts chapter uh, 5 of Ananias and Sapphira. And, and we begin it, we have begun to see some um, um, issues within the community of Jesus' followers. And uh, this week, uh, chapter 6 actually begins once again with an issue within the church, within uh, Jesus' followers. Um, once again, it is an issue that um, is around um, community and around possessions. Um, we're told at the beginning of chapter 6 uh, that uh, because the church had grown, the other thing I don't know if you've noticed in the book of Acts, um, about every chapter there's a summary which uh, talks about um, people coming, uh, becoming a part of the Jesus followers and how this early community uh, just grew and flourished. And we're told in chapter 6 that apparently this growth ha had been so much that it was creating problems within the community. If you remember last week we talked about them uh, selling their possessions, putting them at the feet of the apostles, and the apostles were responsible for distributing and using the finances for the good of the whole community. Well, here in chapter 6, we hear another complaint that has to do with the distribution of food among the early followers of Jesus. It seems that they've grown so fast uh, that there's a group of folks who have been neglected. The Greek-speaking widows apparently are not getting uh, their food or at least a, a um, portion of the food that is being distributed. And so the church comes and says, how do we make this right? And in these first seven verses, we see the church dealing with this conflict and making a decision that they need to expand the leadership of the church. And so they appoint seven people to be over this distribution. Now, I find it interesting that if you pay attention to the seven names that are listed, these seven people are all Greek-speaking Jews, and so, because it was the Greek-speaking Jews who uh, didn't think it was being distributed correctly, that one of their solutions is to uh, appoint this uh, people from this minority to lead them in distributing the food. Two of the names of those folks are Stephen and Philip. And as I said, we're going to look into the stories of those two. We're going to discover uh, that they did a bit more than just distribute food. Uh, that they participated in spreading the gospel just like the apostles did. 
And so we begin in the, about the middle of chapter 6, we begin with this story of Stephen. Um, and um, it, it is good, I think, to remind us as we're looking through Acts, especially these first 15 chapters of Acts, I like to remind us uh, that this is a story um, not of unbelievers and believers. Uh, this first 15 chapters is really about a conflict going on within uh, God-fearing people, within uh, followers of God within the people who believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sometimes we forget that these, uh, these early apostles and followers of Jesus, they were Jewish people. Here in Acts, uh, the, predominantly the followers of Jesus are still within the Jewish people. And so what we are seeing is we are seeing this, this people of God struggling to make sense to make sense of Jesus and who Jesus was and what he means for their faith and for their way forward. But it seems, if we pay attention to the story, it seems even within Judaism, um, in the early church, uh, uh, apparently they were in a habit of forming groups that um, had affinities or looked like each other, if that makes sense. In other words, um, even within Judaism, they had what we might call denominations or local uh, synagogues in their case. And we're told that, that Stephen, apparently Greek-speaking, was most likely a member of this uh, synagogue of freed slaves. In other words, it was the synagogue of people who had likely at one point in time been slaves of Roman citizens. They had gained their freedom, and now they gathered in this synagogue to worship and to hear Torah and to study and to understand where God was calling them and how God was calling them. And so it's good to remember that when Stephen stands up in this synagogue, he is not talking to people who don't believe in God. And we're told in chapter 6 that he begins to have this discussion within this synagogue that he has likely been a part of for quite a while. And he begins to have this discussion, I'm assuming, explaining his understanding of what God is doing and has done through Jesus and this new movement that was called the way and sharing this with them, trying to open their eyes to see how this is in con connected to uh, their ancient faith. And, and we're told apparently Stephen was being quite convincing. He, he must have been swaying folks uh, to, to at least think differently. And that really began to upset some folks. And so um, seeing that they weren't able to win the argument or to win the debate or the discussion or whatever was going on, seeing that they couldn't uh, win it by normal means, they resorted to distortion and falsehoods. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that often what goes on in the world today? Even in the church. Even in the church today, when we have a real uh, touchy subject that really we need to discuss, 
Uh, we, we might debate ideas. We might look at Scripture and, and talk about and have discussions about how we see. Uh, but eventually, it seems to fall into these distortions and name callings. Either we begin to say, well, if you think that way, you just don't think the Bible has authority. Or if you think that way, you just don't take seriously God's command to love your neighbor and to love your enemies. And so that's what's happening here in this, in, in this story. Apparently, uh, Stephen is making a strong um, argument for who Jesus is and what God is doing in and through Jesus, and, and they want to squash that. And so they begin to s- distort what he's saying. And, of course, they say, look, he is speaking badly against Moses and God. Now, you can imagine in a synagogue that was made up of people who had, who had been enslaved, uh, that Moses was held in, in high, very high regard because he is the one who delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And so the only thing they could do was to begin to, to state falsehoods against Stephen. They'd say he speaks against the law, and he speaks against the temple, and he speaks against Moses, and he speaks against God. And they began to stir up so much a commotion within the body of God at that point in time uh, that um, Stephen ends up before the Jerusalem council. Now, if you've been reading Acts, you know that this Jerusalem council is made up of Sadducees and Pharisees of temple leaders. Um, It's the same council that Jesus went before. The same council in Acts that we have seen Peter and John before twice now. And now we see Stephen being called before this Jerusalem council. Now what I find interesting is Stephen doesn't really um, begin to uh, attack or or defend himself against um, each of these charges. He doesn't stand up and say, no, I'm not speaking against the law. Or no, I'm not speaking against the temple. Or no, I'm not speaking against Moses. And then lay out that case. Instead, it seems as if what Stephen does is he probably just begins to lay out the discussion he's been having within the synagogue for the Jerusalem council to hear. It seems that Stephen is less interested in defending himself, less interested in defending himself, and more interested in sharing this perspective and insight he has gained from being a Jesus follower in hopes that maybe they will hear what he says and they will become followers also. So he begins the story in making the connection. He begins the story by talking about Abraham, um, noting, uh, reminding folks that he also is an ancestor of Abraham. He begins to talk about Abraham. And if we pay attention to how he tells this story of Israel, he tells, he tells a good part of the story that is before the temple. Um, I think in some ways he is trying to highlight that as important as the temple is to the people of his days, that God has worked outside the temple in the past, and apparently God is going to work outside the temple in the future. And so he highlights the story of Abraham saying, you know, Abraham was in the, uh, was in the region of Chaldea. And then Haran, and he heard God's voice calling him to go and to follow him, and that he would have this promise of land and blessing so that all the people of the earth might be blessed. 
And yet he tells the story that, you know, that didn't come immediately, that Abraham wandered for a while without land, and, and he passed on this blessing and covenant was passed on to Isaac and to Jacob and to the 12 sons of Jacob. They all had this promise. But then, uh, among the 12 sons of Jacob, we begin to see how Stephen begins to weave this portion of the story uh, that probably a lot of Israelites don't, uh, didn't like to emphasize at that point in time. He reminds them that the 12 tribes of Jacob, that originally uh, they were jealous of Joseph because he was the favored one of his dad, they were jealous of Jacob, of Joseph, and they sold him into slavery. In, in essence, they rejected one of their brothers who was a part of the covenant. And they sold him into slavery in Egypt, intending to be rid of him forever. Thank goodness that wasn't what happened, because we're told that Joseph in Egypt gains wisdom and experiences God's grace. And as a result, he rises to this position of favor and authority with Pharaoh. And in a time of great um, famine, he devises this system which ends up uh, saving the whole area, including his brothers and his father and his whole family as they end up coming to Egypt for help and, and then actually come there to live. And so Joseph, the one who had been rejected by the other 11, ends up being a deliverer and a savior for them. He then tells the story of Moses. Uh, he reminds the folks that a different Pharaoh came along who forgot all the good that Joseph had done, and so he enslaves the people uh, of Israel and the descendants of Jacob and, and is very harsh on them, even to the point where he begins to have their firstborn killed or at least abandoned in the wilderness so that they will die, so that the population won't grow as much. And we're told Moses is born during this time. Moses... Is kind of abandoned with a plot and ends up being um, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter into uh, Pharaoh's household. And again, we have another person who gains wisdom and grace in the household of Pharaoh. And then uh, Stephen tells the story of Moses. Um, going out into the community in a way that it's not told in Exodus. Um, uh, but he talks about uh, Moses at 40 years of age apparently wanted to go into the community to see how his fellow Israelites were being treated. And, and he doesn't like the way they're being treated, and he attempts to be a deliverer or a rescuer for their first rescuing them from the hands of an Egyptian he, he um, seeks to stop an Egyptian from beating a fellow Hebrew, and in doing so, he kills the Egyptian, and the next day, he's out, and two Hebrews are fighting, and he attempts to do the same, the same thing, seeking to bring peace um, with them, and instead of embracing him, they reject Moses. They reject Moses and says, who has appointed you our leader? And so Moses flees. And 40 years later, we're given this picture. Stephen reminds them of what happened at the burning bush where God 
commissions Moses to be the leader of the people. And Moses goes back, and Moses uh, delivers the people. And here in in Acts 7, um, we begin to see uh, Stephen begin to shift, and we begin to see where he's really going with this story. He he begins to emphasize the fact that God keeps raising up leaders. God keeps bringing chosen ones to the people to redirect them, to deliver them, to free them, to heal them. And what do they do? They end up rejecting them. He reminds them that the early ancestors actually rejected Moses, probably something that had been forgotten or certainly wasn't highlighted in the life of Israel as they went along. They probably sought to highlight all the good things that happened, and they didn't want to emphasize the fact that actually they rebelled against Moses over and over and over, at some point saying, we just want to go back to Egypt. It was better there. At other times, building a golden calf and worshiping other gods. At other times, saying they didn't need Moses to lead them. At other times, when Moses wanted to lead a generation into uh, the promised land, they said, no, no, no. Too dangerous for us. Stephen reminds them that they have rejected the prophets Now, Stephen then goes on to talk about the tabernacle and the temple to show where they came about in the history of Israel, that the tabernacle was designed to be there in the center of the camp to remind people that God was with them. The temple was designed to be a place where people knew that they could uh, meet God, where heaven and earth would come together, but they were never intended to be or to be understood as the only place that God was. In fact, in verses 56, uh, 55 and 56, I think it is. No, maybe 49, 50. Somewhere, somewhere there in chapter 7, uh, he quotes from Isaiah. Isaiah says, God does not simply live in houses built by human hands. And so it's almost as if Stephen is saying, this is not a new message. The prophets have said this. The prophets continually called the people to return to God, to see the new things that God was doing, to follow God faithfully. And yet, over and over and over again, Israel rejected the leaders and prophets that God sent to them. And so you see where he's going with this story. They have done the same thing with Jesus. He came to reveal to them the ways of God. He came to be a prophet to call them uh, to, to follow God and to participate in the mission that God had given them from the very beginning. And instead, instead, they kill Jesus. You see how Stephen has painted this picture of a people of God who uh, sometimes think they're following God and aren't. And that brings us to um, verse 51 in um, Acts. You know, I I, I think um, Stephen is trying to make the point that apparently what has happened um, at some point in time is that the Israelites have become so focused on the temple religion 
They have become so focused on what the temple means that they can't get their head around God acting in other ways other than through the temple religion. And so we hear these words that Stephen um, continues as he speaks beginning in verse 51 of chapter 7. Now remember, remember he is saying this to the people of God. Not to people who don't believe in God, not to Gentiles, but to the Jewish folks. You stiff-necked or stubborn people, in your thoughts and hearing, you are like those who have had no part in God's covenant. You continually set yourself against the Holy Spirit, just like your ancestors did. Was there a single prophet your ancestors didn't harass? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, that's Jesus, and you betrayed and murdered him. You received the law given by angels, but you haven't kept it. You understand why they got a little upset? I mean, basically, he's telling people who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, people who think of themselves as being part of the covenant of God, people who think of themselves as being blessed by God and chosen by God and the ones through whom God works. He's saying it's not so. You're so stubborn and stiff-necked. You've become so set in your ways. You've become so focused on, on the methods of the temple and the buildings that you've forgotten about God and God's message and God's purpose for His people and for the world. And so it says, once the council members heard these words, they were enraged. They began to grind their teeth at Stephen. And it says, but Stephen, enabled by the Holy Spirit, he stared up into heaven. He saw God's majesty. He saw Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. And he exclaimed, look, I can see heaven on display, and the human one is standing at the right side of God. Now, we don't get why it says, it goes on to say, uh, they shrieked and covered their ears and then they charged him. They took him outside the city and they stoned him until he was dead. Because you see this picture that he described is a picture of Daniel 7. In essence, Stephen is saying, the end of the age has come. The Messiah is at the right hand of God. The Son of Man is at the right hand of God where He reigns. New things are happening. God is doing a new thing. And instead of opening their eyes, they react from their emotional center of their brain, I guess, and they storm Stephen and they stone him to death. Does this sound familiar? Is this not the same thing that the same council did with Jesus? Although with Jesus, they handed him over to the Roman authorities and let them do the dirty work. In this case, they were so outraged, they just took it into their own hands. And once again, a messenger from God who was challenging them 
challenging them to think of God in different terms, to see the new thing that God was doing. Once again, a messenger of God is killed. Now, it is easy for us sometimes to look at bad and good guys in this, but remember, they think that Stephen is saying blasphemous things about God. And in their effort to defend God, in their effort to defend their beliefs and what they think is rock solid, they killed Jesus, they killed Stephen. And instead of protecting and defending the ways of God, they are actually rebelling and working against the ways of of God. Just get your head around that for a while. Stephen, while they're enraged and they persecute him and kill him, Stephen says, forgive them. Do not hold this against them. In the midst of being persecuted, in the midst of being opposed, in the midst of knowing, because he has seen the heavens open. He sees Jesus there at the right hand of God. He knows without a doubt. And rather than calling down God's vengeance, he says, forgive them. Demonstrating his complete understanding of who Jesus was and what Jesus was about. Now as we hear this story today, It might not be a bad idea for us to think about our beliefs and our understanding of God today. It might be a good time for us to just think And to reflect, are there those things that we are so adamant about defending because we have put God in this box because we understand God this way? Are there these things uh, that we might be defending and think we're standing up for God and in fact, we are working against what God is doing? Is it possible Is it possible that that could be happening among the church today? Is it possible that these places where we think that we have been called to defend God, that God doesn't need us to defend him, and that we, in fact, may be working against God? Let that soak in. Now, I'm telling you, I was tempted to give you a list of things that we might consider. But the more I've listened to the Spirit today, I think the Spirit wants you to go home with that question. I think the Spirit wants the community of God in this day and age to really struggle 
to struggle with our understanding of God, to be sure that we haven't become so, so rigid and proud and convinced that we've got all the answers, that we can't be open-minded enough to hear other people's perspective and to hear the things that God might be doing in this world today. A few uh, weeks ago, I was having the conversation, um, I think it was online, I was having a conversation about this idea of our core beliefs being challenged, and there were some folks just insisting, no, we hold on to those core beliefs, we don't ever allow them to be uh, challenged or changed, uh, because that leads to heresy. Interesting. Who were the heretical people in the story of Stephen and the Jerusalem council? Was it Stephen who saw the new thing that God was doing? Or was it the people who were so set that they knew everything there was to know about God, there was no other transformation that needed to happen in their lives? Where? Might God be challenging the church today? Not to change our views, but just to be open-minded. To consider that God might be doing a new thing in a new way. Have we become so convinced that God can only work in the temple and that God is only in the temple that we think there is no other way that God can work. In a couple of weeks, actually, when we talk about the story of Saul and the story of Peter, we're going to get to dig into that a little bit more. Because, you know, Saul was not an unbeliever who was converted to a believer. Saul was a Pharisee, a firm believer whose ideas of God were changed in dramatic ways. And the same thing is true of Peter. So I invite you this day, as you go home, spend some time in this story. Ask yourself, where are the places we need to be paying attention to what God is doing today so that we might continue to be shaped and formed? So that we might not miss out on what Jesus is doing in our world and our community today. May it be so in our lives. Amen. Now I invite you, for those at home, for those here, to uh, not only prepare your elements, but also to prepare your hearts for celebrating in this communion of Christ, for allowing um, us to experience God in mysterious and deep ways. I invite you to join with me in the great thanksgiving. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Indeed, it is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere.
to give thanks to you, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Indeed, after Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, you continued to give him wisdom and grace and, and um, raised him up to be a deliverer and a, a leader of the people. When the people in the wilderness, after Moses had delivered them from bondage in Egypt, after they rebelled against him, after uh, they asked to go back and they refused to follow him into the promised land, you still sought after them, sending your prophets to call people back, to uh, get people to look and to continue to grow in their understanding of you and your ways, inviting them into the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that they might share love and grace with all of humanity. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and we join their unending hymn. Holy, 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 Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you, and blessed is your Son, Jesus Christ. Indeed, he came to open up and reveal your ways more fully to people. And even when they rejected them from the cross, he said, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. By his baptism, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, you gave birth to this body of Christ, to the church. You delivered uh, us from slavery to sin and death, and you made with us a new covenant by water and by spirit. Indeed, on the night in which Jesus gave himself up for us, he took the bread, broke it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. After the supper, he took the cup again, he gave thanks, he said, drink from this, all of you, this is my blood of a new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink. And so it is, in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the great mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And now I invite you, if you're at home, if you're here, uh, to get the elements that you have, and I'm going to invite at least one person in the group to, to hold them up. You know, we, we, we like to bless the bread and the cup that we share, but this is how we do it today, trusting that the Spirit is at work. And so we pray this, this, this prayer, uh, Holy Spirit, uh, pour out your Spirit upon those that are gathered here, upon those who are gathered at home that have joined us live, and pour out your Spirit upon the gifts of bread and cup wherever they might be. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, so that we might be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed and saved by His blood. 
so that we might be your hands and your feet, that we might be agents of grace forever learning about you. By your Holy Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ shall come in final victory and we'll join him at that heavenly feast. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with your Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen. And now I invite you, you can take the top off of your juice here. I'm going to invite um, everybody in the group to get a piece of bread. Kind of want to wait till everybody has that. And then you can either have one pers- person in the group uh, take the cup or you can pass the cup down. I'm going to invite you in this moment to dip the bread in the cup. And in receiving and partaking of the bread and the cup, may you experience the presence of God in a fresh and new ways. Eternal God, we give thanksgiving for this great mystery, this sacrament of bread and cup that you share with us. We entrust that as we partake, as we take the bread and the, and the juice into ourselves, that your spirit works deep within us in new and different ways. We trust that that same spirit will enable us that rather than being hard-hearted, that we would have humble hearts and open hearts that are always seeking to know your ways in our day and time and in all days and times. In Christ's name, amen.